the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 476 of the podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. We've got Clay Scroggins back on the podcast. We're going to talk about why he was one of the many who left full-time ministry, how to tackle the rapid changes facing leaders, how vulnerability is critical to great leadership. And today's episode is brought to you by ProMedia Fire. You can actually get a custom website and web maintenance by going to ProWebFire.com. Tell them I sent you, you'll get a discount. And by Leader, go to Leader.com, that's L-E-A-D-R.com, and use the promo code CARRY to get 20% off on your first year of their people development software. Well, I've known Clay for a long, long time, and it is so good to have him back on. We are going to talk about, well, a new book he's got, but also a whole new chapter in his life. And we talk about, well, you know, the the great resignation, as we talked about, and if you're in the church space, Barna saying 38% of pastors are seriously thinking about stepping out of ministry. And Clay's one of them who actually did that last year. So we talk about it. And everybody's got their own reasons. We describe why. But I think it's been um, super, super healthy to have these conversations Clay is the best-selling author of How to Lead When You're Not in Charge and How to Lead in a World of Distraction. For over two decades, he worked at North Point Ministries, starting as a facilities intern, as he says, vice president of nothing, and eventually becoming the lead pastor of their largest campus. He's now a sought-after leadership speaker engaging audiences that include the Atlanta Hawks, Mercedes-Benz, Chick-fil-A, the Federal Reserve Bank, and Terminus. He graduated from Georgia Tech with an industrial engineering degree, and he's got a master's and a doctorate from Dallas Theological Seminary. So it's going to be so good for you to listen in on this conversation. We got a lot coming up for you on the podcast. And, uh, you know, when you think about what you're going to do with your website in 2022, there's a couple of possibilities. You can have a do-it-yourself website builder. Uh, A lot of them are online. It's kind of plug and play. It's a lot of work, though, and it kind of looks like everybody else. Or you can hire someone to build your website, and you get hassled with all the updates. Or you can get a custom website and maintenance with hassle-free updates by ProMediaFire's web division, ProWebFire. The ProWebFire process is simple. You get some web strategy sessions, you get a custom design and development stage, and then you look amazing online and convert traffic. The best part is once your site is complete, you can choose a hosting plan for monthly or weekly maintenance so you're never hassled with updating your site again. So if you want an amazing website, reach out to the pros at ProMediaFire's web division by going to ProWebFire.com. Tell them I sent you and you get a discount. And if you haven't yet checked out Leader, please do so. I mean, the great resignation probably took a toll on your team. Uh, Well, we're talking about that in this episode. And you know, the data is telling us that 50% of people either have or will be leaving their job for another job in the next 12 months. (laughs) I know, isn't that crazy? And they're looking for workplaces where they can be engaged and grow every day. That's one of the reasons people are leaving. And some of you have new hires. So the question is, do you know how to keep them? Like, are you just going to do this again? Harvard Business Review says 70% of the reason a person leaves their job is because of their relationship with their manager. And that puts so much of the spotlight on the one-on-one meetings you have with your direct reports. 
A leader believes that the one-on-one meeting is the most powerful leadership development tool a manager has, which is why they build platforms to help you lead effective one-on-one meetings, develop leaders at every level of your organization, and engage and grow every person on your team. 500 churches and businesses are already using Leader, and if you want to request your demo today, go to leader.com, that's L-E-A-D-R.com, no E, and use the promo code CARRY. You'll get 20% off your first year of their people development software. That's leader.com, use the promo code CARRY, you'll get 20% off. Well, let's dive into another fascinating conversation, this time with Clay Scroggins. Here we go. Clay, welcome back to the podcast. It's good to have oh you, Oh my man. goodness, Carrie. Thank you. I feel, mm-hmm. feel like it's been too long. Well, it has been a while. It's been it's been a minute. Yeah. I don't know when the last time it was that I had you on, but a lot has changed in the world. Uh, a lot has uh, changed in your world. Yes. In fact, a big pivot for you last year, heading into this year. Uh, you actually became one of the 38% That's right. of pastors who were thinking about leaving full-time pastoring. I don't know whether you ever leave it though. Like, you know, would you, do you still think of yourself as a pastor? Cause you left um, yeah, North Point Ministries. I did. After how many years? You uh, started there when you were four? Uh, yeah, I wish. Uh, trying to remember. It was 18 years that I had been there. So I was 20, 25, 26, somewhere around in there. Um, wow. No, 24, 24. But yes, I, I struggle. I mean, I, I yeah, uh, the, your question, do you ever leave it? <laughs> that is my struggle. Uh-huh. I found in me yeah. more of a, that, that belief that if you're, that you're called for life to be a pastor and if you leave it, you're living in sin. Of course, I don't right. believe that, but I have found that in me. And so it's been. But a, you think now that you're living in sin now that you're no longer the exactly. campus pastor, lead pastor of a local church. Exactly. Okay. I mean, I know that I'm. I know that I'm not. But I have found it in me uh, that feeling of like, is this okay? That uh, you know, that I'm not going to be doing anything for anyone for Easter or something like that. You know. Is that okay? Okay, that's a really good question, all right? Because we have a lot of pastors listening, a lot of business leaders, obviously, but also probably our share of former pastors. Yeah. It's it's a, like, if, if you search the internet, not that anybody would spend a minute doing this and look at different bios, I'm sure you can find bios of me in the last two years, some of which call me a pastor, mm-hmm. some of which call me a former pastor. It's like, I don't even know what I am. Mm. Am I a former pastor? Am I a pastor? I don't, I don't get it. I'm not like working at a church full time anymore. I'm not even on the active teaching roster. Um, so what do I do? Well, I help people thrive mm-hmm. and haven't lost my faith. In fact, it's growing. But I don't know. Once a pastor, always a pastor. It's a good thing. So just catch people up with the story. Yeah. Uh, last year, you stepped off of the staff yep. at North Point. And, uh, and what happened? Well, yeah, I, yeah, I, you know, I do feel like a walking cliche in a way because I feel like, oh, mm. you went through a pandemic. Everybody started reflecting on their job and their life and what they're doing, having all those existential questions of what am I here for, all that stuff. And then you right. resigned, which that is what that, <laughs> in a nutshell, that is what <laughs> happened. 
but obviously <laughs> it's far more complicated. But not on the inside. I know <laughs> right. I'm a statistic, That's but right. I'm not a statistic, no, right? I Come was, on, I am Give unique. Me a break. I'm a snowflake. I'm the only one going through this. No. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I worked for Andy Stanley for 18 years, as I mentioned, and he was, uh, he has been amazing to me. I mean, uh, massive influence in my life and obviously in loads of people's lives, but um, I had changed jobs numerous times. Uh, I led a couple of our campuses. Most recently, uh, it was leading our Alpharetta campus called North Point, which is our original one. And then two years ago, moved to Buckhead into Atlanta, the city of Atlanta, to lead Buckhead Church. And I was, uh, I was professionally restless, which who hasn't been, right? I mean, everyone has experienced mm-hmm. professional restlessness, but it was more pronounced than it had ever been before. And I started wondering, not is this job great? Because it was genuinely my dream job, but is this job right for me? And I think that's the struggle that a lot of people have that, you know, loads of people have experienced what I had been experiencing. Uh, It's a great job, love it, but it's not right for me anymore. So I came to that conclusion. I looped my bosses in on it and said, hey, I think I need to do something different. And that's scary because I don't exactly know what. And they were gracious and kind and really helpful uh, in the process. And through all that, I made the decision to resign. Uh, I called my dad like a month before to say, dad, I'm really wrestling through this and I'm thinking I'm going to do something different. And he goes, do you know what you're going to do yet? I was like, not really. He goes, well, let me give you one piece of advice. Don't ever quit a job until you have a job, which is, isn't that fatherly advice? Uh, mm-hmm. Which is exa- And what'd you say? Sorry, dad. I'm about to. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Now I remember it was a, I don't know that you remember this or not, but I remember exactly where I was. I was on vacation on my boat and you and I had a conversation mm-hmm. as you were weighing that, weighing the options. And it's a big decision. Because you thought, well, what am I going to do? As I say, I've been in ministry all my life. I have no actual skills. Right, right, right. right. (laughs) What do you do, right? right? I can't exactly uh, dig ditches. I can't exactly repair cars. What what do you do with your life? So what have you been doing the last, well, as we record this, six, seven months? Yeah, I, 2017, released this book, How to Lead When You're Not in Charge. And that book has been a massive gift for me, and I hope it's been a gift for other people, but it's given me so many great opportunities to talk about leadership. And I have followed, I've really found more and more that I really love doing that. I, of course, love talking about the gospel and love talking about Jesus, but I feel like leadership is, there's so much about it that is so spiritual. And so I've been doing a lot of preaching at churches on the weekend and then doing a lot of speaking about leadership with companies uh, during the weekdays. And that's been thrilling. I mean, it's been a, it's been, I've definitely felt, uh, you know, uh, a little bit like a missionary might feel of kind of dropping into a, uh, part of the world that I don't feel super comfortable in, but feeling like I've got this great opportunity to try to help, help people, encourage people. Um, I, I try to, what I, what I tell, uh, organizational leaders is, Hey, you've got your organization to run, but I know you want your people to be better people and I want to help them be better people. And when they become better people, they will be better leaders. And when they're better leaders, they'll make you more money. They'll help your company grow even more. And so let me help take some of the load off of your plate in doing that. So that's, that's, that's what I've been doing. Yeah. 
You know, it's interesting because a lot of us are kind of reinventing ourselves and sort of creating opportunities where there aren't. What's been the uh, best part of the move and the hardest part of the move? The best part, yeah, so when you work for, right now, I'm working for myself. And I think as, I, as far as I can tell, that's what I'm going to do. But when you do that, you trade, it's, it feels like a straight up trade, security for freedom. And mm. when things are good and you have some work to do, uh, it's a, that's a good trade. But um, for the first time ever, I've really started to feel that sense of anxiety of, oh no, what happens if I don't have work? Um, so I, I would say that trade so far has been the best part. I mean, I've loved the freedom of it. I've, you know, uh, I've gone to church with my family the last couple of weeks, which mm. has been fabulous. I preached about three months straight on weekends, but the last couple of weeks, um, we just went to church together and that's been great. We still go to Buckhead church. Um, the worst part, the, the, pressure of what's next, the uncertainty of what's next, it's just, uh, that is a hard thing when you just don't know. And I can talk about having faith in God to other people. I can talk about trusting mm -hmm. God when you can't see to other people. I can talk about Psalm 23, that he's the good shepherd and therefore I lack nothing. I can talk about that with other people, but um, it is a lot harder to apply. It never you know, that's something that I'm constantly having to apply. What does it look like for me to trust him that um, I don't have to see the whole picture on the other side? Um, that's probably been the hardest part. Well, you've always worked under the leadership of other people for the last, I guess, 16, 18 years, you said, yep. Andy Stanley, right? You always kind of had his covering and he was the, the senior pastor at North Point Ministries. What are some differences when you kind of report to yourself? Because there's a lot of leaders listening who do report to someone else now, and they're wondering, huh, I wonder what it would be like if I was my own boss. What's that been like the first? And I, you know, I say that as somebody who's kind of always been my own boss. Uh, so I've got decades of that, knowing the ups and the downs. But what about for you, the the baptism into that? Well, I, I've I've spent a lot of time talking about self leadership over the years, as you have too. Um, I mean, at your best is really a a lot of that is about self-leadership, about leading yourself. Yeah, it really is well. actually. And True. that I've had to apply that more than ever. I mean, I've had to apply those principles of, Hey, um, it's really impossible for someone to lead you. If you're not willing to lead yourself, uh, it's almost impossible for someone to lead you. Well, if you're not putting yourself in a position where you are willing to do the things that it takes uh, to become a person of influence, to become a person that um, is helping others. And so I would say that's one of the hardest parts is just the, uh, the, the self-discipline, the self-governance of leading yourself well or leading myself well. I mean, secondly, the emotional toll of just, you know, I, I, I used to think I wasn't cut out for it because I told myself that for a long time because I worked for a rather large organization. Oh, I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm better in a big organization, all that stuff. Um, I regret telling myself that because I think I just was telling myself the truth about the situation that I was in, but I didn't actually know. So I was unsure whether or not I would be able to emotionally handle the uncertainty of not knowing where work is going to come from. And I would say, I, so far I'm handling it okay, but that is, it is not easy 
I, I do feel like you have to be cut from a certain cloth to be able to manage the anxiety of, I don't exactly know where, I think I know what I'm doing next month, but I don't exactly know what I'm doing in three or four months. And that's, um, I don't, that's not for everyone for sure. And I, I'm still trying to figure out if it's for me. <laughs> oh, that's a good way of describing the last 25 years of my life. It's like, I know what's happening next month. I don't know about four or five months down the road. I mean, you know, generally, right? But you, yeah. you're right. You really don't know specifically. It's it's sort of uh, over the edge. Okay. Uh, we're going to talk about your new book, The Aspiring Leader's Guide to the Future. We're going to talk about how leadership is changing. You make the case that it's changing. I agree. But because you've had all these years in the church, one of the questions I'm asking this year is, you know, what about our current model of church is broken? And what is working? What are some flickers of hope? And I'm not asking you to critique North Point. I mean, I have a lot of respect for Andy like you do, but I'm talking about capital C church, the way a lot of us do church. What what do you think is breaking or broken or moribund? And what do you think is starting to work or we should pay more attention to. Gary, this is one of those areas where I feel I have felt always so um, in sync with you. I feel like you and I share a lot of similar ideas we have over the years even. I remember when the big, yeah. you know, when we were five years ago or so trying to figure out online church and does it count and does it matter and is it here to stay? And man, looking back on those conversations, I think we did a podcast on it, on your, on the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. And, you know, the way the world has changed in the last two years is just remarkable. We have compressed 10 years of change into two years. We were already moving this way, but here we are uh, so comfortable with, let's just do that meeting on Zoom. I mean, I just got out of the car. I went to Costco with my father-in-law about 30 minutes ago, and he was telling me that he hasn't been in a store. He's 68. He said, I haven't been in a store in as long as I can remember. And he says, we only order on, you know, Instacart or whatever the app would be that they use. I think it's Instacart that they use, but uh, that's so different. I mean, they didn't, and they didn't know, they didn't, they didn't, they'd never done that two years ago, but COVID taught. he's 68. He's 68. Yeah. And COVID forced him to learn how to do it. And now he's like, I don't ever see us going back to a store. Um, I mean, it's, I mean, he was even, I, you know, I felt a little bit critiqued as he was looking at what we bought at Costco. He was like, I mean, you could have ordered all of that on, <laughs> you could have just had it delivered, you know, like, what are you even doing? So, um, Fair pops. yeah, exactly. Okay. Thanks for that. Um, but I, I mean, that's just one small example of how the world has just advanced so rapidly. And of course I wanted to, you know, that was my first thought when he said that was, and the same is true of church, right? I mean, that value of convenience is just the preeminent value. And we've got to figure out what to do with it. Is it a bad thing? Is it a good thing? And I I don't even know if that's a good question. Is it a bad thing or a good thing? Because it, it just is a thing. It is, it's a thing. It's a reality. It's a thing. That's right. So did, to use one of Andy's phrases, did you find yourself as a leader? And I mean, when you think about campus pastor, you're not talking about 300 people. You're talking about thousands and thousands of people, which in most cases in and of itself would be a mega church. But did you find yourself having had the track record that you did uh, needing to manufacture energy in places you weren't manufacturing energy before? That's a phrase Andy has used, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and I love that. I think about that all the time. Where are we manufacturing energy? And what we mean by that is, you know, what used to be easy that now is just so much effort and 
you're seeing diminished returns. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's some of that's just the natural progression of any larger organization. But I would say the place where I've constantly struggled to feel it or to, where I feel like I need to manufacture energy or I have felt the even the organizational pressure to manufacture energy is to try to talk people into being in the building. Um, <laughs> that is, a, I just got exhausted doing that. I, and, and, and I, I also am so easy, ready to admit it's better in the building. Of course it's better in the building. I just spoke at a, I spoke at a conference for 350 Taco Bell franchisees and they did the whole conference uh, uh, virtually and they normally do it in person. And they were trying to decide, should we do it next year virtually or should we do it in person? And of course they're going, it's better in person. But Carrie, I mean, do you want to know the cost difference virtually versus having the conference in person? <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. I, I think they spent $15,000 on this virtual conference. They normally spend $500,000 on the in-person conference. And so is it worth wow. it? Well, of, you know, I don't, I don't know. It's so hard to know, is it worth it? And I know there's so much of that that is not church, but so much of that does correlate to, that's what every person, every congregant is weighing on Sunday morning. Not, is it better for me to go? Of course it would be better if I were there in person. Life is better when I'm in person. This would be better if you and I were in the same room, of course. But the fact that you can be in Canada and I can be sitting here in the southeastern part of the United States in Atlanta, and we can do this, it's, I, it's, I don't know that it would be worth it for us to get together. And so that's what every person is trying to weigh mm. on Sunday morning when they wake up is I know it's better, but is it worth it for me to go do that? And I, that's where we've got to, th those conversations of, are we making it worth it for them? We've been having those conversations for years now. Well, and what I, what I sense, I'm glad you raised that. What I hear over and over again is pastors making theological points about why you have to be in person, why you yep. have to be in the room. And I'm not going to quibble with in person. I think rooms have a role. I think small groups have a role. I think micro gatherings have a role. I think people need people. I'll argue that all day long. However, people have voted. They've been <laughs> right. voting for a long time. That's it's right. like your 68-year-old father-in-law who's like, yeah, I don't know whether I ever have to go exactly. back to a store. I'm on Instacart. And it's like, okay, are we just writing you off then? Is that what we're doing? Mm -hmm. Because you won't come to my party. You won't come to my house. You won't come to my room. You don't count. Mm, not sure that's the best strategy. Any any innovations that you found? And this, by the way, is a bit of a wasteland right now, particularly in the church. I think businesses are innovating a lot faster than churches. Yeah, and schools. But, um, and schools. Schools are innovating mm -hmm. a lot faster than churches. But any flickers of hope in the wider church or in your own experience that you're like, yeah, I would pay attention to this and turn up the dial on that. Uh, that's such a hard question because I just don't know enough. I yeah. mean, that's the other part that I really am, I feel slightly guilty about is I have all this experience in the church world and now I've been out for about half a year and I'm like, it's crazy how outdated I already feel. I mean, I, <laughs> I love what Judah Smith's doing with church home. I, I mean, I think that concept is the way of the future of basically saying, hey, we can create little micro churches. I think neighborhood churches, local in-person gatherings, making it really easy for people, as easy as possible at four or 500 people. I love that concept. I think, you know, there's a church called Family Church in South Florida that I really like. Uh, 
that is, they're really focused on neighborhood churches. And I think that's, I think there's something about that in the future, but I just, I, I am excited to see the openness that hopefully the last two years has created in us to be able to leverage technology and not just fight against technology, but we're going to have to invest in it. I mean, that's the biggest issue is, Mm -hmm. are we going to actually move money, move people, move talent, uh, to, 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 to give people the freedom and the space to be able to try and risk and um, give it a shot. I like, uh, I think it's Scott Cormode. I was just looking at my bookshelf of books. He wrote a book called The Innovative Church. And there's a line in the beginning of that book where he says, our church is calibrated for a world that no longer exists. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a really scary and a statement that we should be paying attention to um, because I think it is. I think most of us are calibrated for a world that no longer exists. And the same is true for leadership. I mean, leaders are calibrated for a world that no longer exists, which is why the future of leadership is so important. Yeah, let's talk about that. So the book is called, for those of you who are watching, The Aspiring Leader's Guide to the Future, um, Nine Surprising Ways Leadership is Changing. I think we all know it's changing. And if you're not changing with it, you're in trouble. But I want to talk, you're pretty honest and open in the book about failure. Um, And I think this is an almost quote. You say, you probably had more failures in the last few years than normal, perhaps, than everything combined in the previous decade and a half of your leadership. So many leaders, Clay, are afraid to fail. Can you walk us through failure? What's that look like in your life? And then um, what are you learning about failure? Well, I had it when I was the lead pastor at North Point Community Church. I had two, uh, I think internally they were almost, it was decided that they were failures. And that's where I feel like I really struggled the most with becoming risk averse. But we started a young adult service. We put a ton of energy into it. And, you know, after a couple of years, we had a couple of hundred people attending, which in most worlds would be wonderful. But Success. Exactly. But at North Point, you know, the first service had a thousand people there having a couple hundred people after a couple of years, just eventually my bosses were like, Hey, we can't keep doing this. Um, that was a huge, I mean, that was a tough pill to swallow, so to speak for me. And then secondly, I, I created a little, uh, skunk works team to try to figure out all this digital stuff. Um, we called it North Point Go, NP Go, trying to really understand what would it look like for us to that. help people who were unknown. They were just watching. How do we help them raise their hand and become known? And then how do we help them go from known to actually engaged wherever they are? Do we have a structure? Do we have a strategy? Do we have a system that would enable them to do that? And, you know, I think I never really got total honesty from my bosses about it, but I, the feeling I got was that they were a little frustrated with me that I wasn't focused more on in-person um, attendance, which is totally understandable that they would want to be focused on in-person attendance. And eventually they kind of uh, moved it to another department and took it out from under me. And that was a, I mean, it was a punch to the gut. That was a hard, hard thing for me. It felt like, a failure. Um, and I would say those two instances, it just did something in me that I found over the next year that I thought, Oh no, uh, this isn't going to work 
long term in the future for, for me as a leader, not just for me here, but the leader of the future is going to have to be willing to try and fail and see their failures as learnings and growth and uh, expensive lessons. Uh, what you know that statement? What do you get when you don't get what you want? You get experience, which is a really good thing, but it's hard um, because you know none of us want experience. We want success, successful experience. Mm. But learning, uh, you have to uh, be willing to, because of how quickly the world's changing, how rapidly it's changing, and how we're constantly stuck in this state of being a. In the video gaming world, they call it a noob. You know, you're you're new to the game. You don't. You're kind of a rookie. We're going to be stuck in the noob state for the next however many years because things change so rapidly, hmm. so fast. So yeah, I just think that fear of failure is. Um, it is, we have to pay attention to it as we look toward the future. You say it made you risk averse. And I think a lot of leaders have had that. And it's pretty easy, particularly as you get older, to be in the, hey, we tried that before, or, ooh, I'm not going to put it all on the line again. How are you fighting that battle internally, Clay? Well, helping, you know, understanding it has been a big, uh, has been helpful for me. Speaking to the fear, being able to describe the fear. I, I use this little, um, I call it a feararchy, but it's a hierarchy of fear. And I really connect it to, um, or I, I really, it, it, Maslow's hierarchy of needs helped me understand it. But yeah. at the very yeah. basic level, you know, he says food, shelter, clothing, right? I mean, that's where we were as a society at one point. We're not there anymore. Now we're all the way at the self-actualization level at the very top of the hierarchy, you know, asking all those questions. Am I fulfilled? Do I like my job? You know, there was a day where did you like your job? I don't know. This I would. I'm not going to irrelevant ask question. You, what, it's like you have. Do a you job. have a job? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> You're going to eat. That's You're going right. to live indoors. Like be thankful. But I and I love that we're there. I love that people are asking. Does this job fulfill me? Does yeah. it make me happy? Does it give me a purpose? You know. Does it allow me to find community? Uh, there's a there's a hierarchy of fear as well. At the very basic level, you've got death. But you know that what is that Seinfeld little bit that he has where he says you know it was discovered last year that the top two reasons of uh, the top two fears in America number one, or in the world or in corporate world or whatever uh, number one is death uh, excuse me number two is death surprisingly and number one is speaking in public which means that if you're at a funeral you'd rather be in the casket than doing the eulogy at the funeral <laughs> that's his big punchline <laughs> you know but there's so much uh, insight into that that is fascinating that people are more afraid of speaking in public than death well why is that well because death is at the very bottom of the fear hierarchy above that is the loss of autonomy above that is the loss of relationship and then at the very top is i think why speaking in public is such a significant fear for people but it's the fear of being humiliated the fear of embarrassment um i would rather Ooh. you know you hear people say i would rather die then go through that again or stand in front of these people and do whatever. And really understanding that, oh, that the reason why those two experiences that I had that marked me so deeply, they made me feel embarrassed. They made me feel humiliated. But then you've got to get under that and talk to yourself, right? Or let God talk to you and say, okay, well, why? Why does that humiliate you? What does that say about you? Um, First of all, is it true that it was a failure? And then number two, hmm. what kind of actions does that cause you to take because you believe that? And could you be believing something that's not actually true? So all of that introspection just helped me so much. 
And it gave me the um, perspective, I would say, to go, you know what? I'm not going to let that mark me. I mean, of course it's going to mark me, but I'm not, I'm not going to let it paralyze me that I'm still got to be willing to step out there and take risks and try things. How is fear of failure one of the aspects, you know, behind the changing nature of leadership or is it not? Is that just like an incidental along the way? Do you think failure and fear of failure is part of the changing landscape of leadership? Yeah, I would, one of the big, um, I, you know, I don't know, the, the way I, the way the book was orchestrated or the way it was outlined was I give nine surprising ways leadership is changing. And each one, the intention was that each one would stand on its own by itself. But of course, the, you know, I would imagine, I, I, my hope would be if somebody sat down and read through the whole thing, they would catch some themes, catch some general changes that are happening. One of the most significant changes about the future, Kevin Kelly, the uh, founder of Wired Magazine, there's a big excerpt that I use from him that is, uh, he wrote a book called Irresistible, 12 of the most significant technological shifts that we need to pay attention to. And one of them is this idea that things are changing so rapidly. So, yeah. it, the, you know, yeah. you have a software that you haven't used in a while. You open it up. You're like, where's my, you know, a great instance is, you know, just before this, you said, hey, would you record this on GarageBand? I've done stuff in GarageBand, but it's been a, it's been a month or two. And when I open it back up, <coughs> excuse me, I think what I experienced, thank you. Um, I was like, where'd the menu go? Where'd my, where'd my button go? You know, it had changed since the last time I'd used it. I mean, the mm -hmm. technology is- How dare you update that software? Exactly. Yeah. You didn't even ask my permission or give me a notification that you were doing that. Obviously that would have been annoying had they have done that. But uh, that's the way life is working right now. The, the, up, the way apps are being updated, the way software is being updated, the way information is being created, the way that the technology that's going to affect the next year, we- might not even know about it right now. Uh, we might not even be using it right now. I just installed a you know smart thermostat in my house. I mean, the, the, the examples are endless of the ways that it's constantly changing. And all of those changes keep us in this position where we have to be willing to say, I don't know. And, I, I, mm. and, and that's scary. I mean, that's, leaders don't like saying, I don't know. Uh, leader, we all have this sense of what a leader is and who a leader should be. And it's somebody who's competent, somebody who's confident and asking the question, I don't know, or admitting, I don't know is, oh, it's awful for leaders, but the future leader has to be able to say it. The future leader has to be willing to try things and fail at things quickly and often and learn from them or else you won't be able to. I don't. I think you could get more prepared in the past. I think you could study more, learn more, and then be ready to step out. But the time you spend studying and learning, it's already changed by the time you're stepping out, and that's just different than it was in the past. I mean, I, I wrote a I wrote a dissertation on the topic of helping people grow spiritually online. I think it got published in 2014. I mean, I can't imagine how worthless it is <laughs> right now because it's just so different today than it was then, and it's going to be even more different in the future. Now, that's a really good point. I want to talk about some myths that uh, are no longer true about leadership. Either maybe they were never true or definitely, hey, as of right now, they're not true anymore. What are some um, myths about great leadership that just don't hold water any longer? Well, I, I, I'll carefully wade into this one since you use the water uh, metaphor. Hmm. 
But I use the line from Jim Collins in Good to Great, which, I mean, incredible book. Yeah. I mean, absolute in the Hall of Fame of leadership books. It's on my bookshelves. I'm, I'm sure it's on everyone's bookshelf. And he uses that phrase that before you start worrying about the what, you got to worry about the who, that you got to figure out yeah. who's on the bus. You got to get the right people on the bus. I think that concept of getting the right people on the bus is dangerous for the future. I think we have to really pay attention to what do we mean by that because the word right um, is uh, needs to be defined. What do we mean by right? Because too often, right has been like me because we're all prone to assert greater potential to people who look like us and have educational background like us or experience like us because it strokes our own ego. It makes us feel good about ourselves. I mean, it's really a form of loving ourselves well, and we have to pay attention to that because I don't know that that's going to be what's right in the future. I think in the future, I mean, our world, just the data of the way diversity is increasing in our future. I think, I, I, don't, I don't know how it is in Canada. It's probably pretty different in Canada, but in America, uh, in the next, within the next 20 years, white people are going to be the minority. And that is yeah, a very similar here. Significant in, in big yeah. cities like Toronto, where close to where you yeah. are. Yeah. I mean, that's just, um, that is so different than the world of the past. And I know it makes us all mm. fearful to talk about it. And it makes, or it makes a lot of people fearful to talk about it because of the unknown. We just think, well, I don't even know what does that mean? And I'm just going to worry about just getting the best people. And I'm not going to worry about all that. I'm just going to, you know, which unfortunately, oftentimes, getting the best people are getting the right people in the bus. It's just people who look like me and exactly. think like me and went to the same school and exactly hang out in the same social circles. No, you're right. I think that myth is a myth that we need to deal with. So from the perspective of diversity and even different thinking, intellectual diversity, not just racial diversity and that kind of thing, but just people who think differently than we do. Do you think that's related to the pace of change? Uh, I hadn't thought about that. Do you see that? This is where I'm like, oh my well, gosh, Well, it seemed Carrie. to be a logical connection in my mind, Clay, because if you think about it, like, mm -hmm. you know, I thought a really good insight was we don't have time to prepare as much mm -hmm. because, you know, look back at Christmas, everybody was prepared with their plans. And then this thing nobody had heard of, you know, in November, Omicron shows up and throws a grenade into the world. And people are canceling flights and cruises and get-togethers and putting masks back on. And it's like, are you kidding me? Like, nobody can plan for that. Mm. Like, you just can't. And global pandemic aside, the political instability we felt with, we you know. And so sort of that long, steady gaze in a particular direction that a leader would bring um, from your own perspective, that had a shelf life, mm. right? I, I wrote this post years ago called uh, Theory of the 10-Year Run that most bands really have about a decade of top hits in them. Now, the Rolling Stones have been going for, gosh, I don't know, 55 years, yeah. years 60 55. years. Oh. I don't know, a long time. Before I was born, uh, they were making hits. Mm. And, you know, they're still on tour. But if you look at their hits, they all happen in about a 10 to 15-year mm. window. And that's it. So they're still, every, you go there, everybody wants to hear Satisfaction or Beast of Burden or something like that. But it's a very narrow window. And uh, Start Me Up was the last one, really, one of the last ones. And so there's this cycle, this, this, this shelf life for creativity and sort of your run 
where you're starting, you're in breakthrough, then you figure it out, you perfect it, and then you start to plane out. You either reinvent yourself or go to obscurity. It's a it's a variation of the sigmoid curve. So yeah, but you're right. We don't have a lot of time to prepare and algorithms can change your online presence in a heartbeat overnight. And now we got the metaverse and a bunch of other stuff to think about. So what are some other myths about well, leadership? I would say that, and that doesn't excuse us from preparing. I would say we still should prepare, but that idea right. of being of agility, of being able to adapt and be flexible. I think that I think that skill is going to be needed greater. I mean, I was talking to a guy I agree last week who's a he's about to be a new dad and he you know, I started asking him about I was like, look at us two fathers talking about feeding schedules, but I was like, are y'all going to demand feed or are you going to schedule feed, you know? That's a significant question when you're having your first baby. And he said, "Oh, we we are actually just talking about that. I think we're going to schedule feed." And he was like, "But does it even matter? I mean, we don't even know what we're doing. It feels like it's all going to fall apart at some point. And I'm like, you're totally right. It doesn't really matter in the sense that it is, you're going to have moments where you're like, we have no clue what you're doing. You cannot get prepared for that. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't try to be prepared for it. And I, I, I'm not saying that, that mm. you don't agree with that. I hear what you're saying. You do agree with that as, as well. But I think the, the reason why that's important is because you can have a plan for the future and you should have a plan for the future, but the ability to be open-handed, the ability to adapt, the ability to be agile and be flexible is going to be greater. That need is going to be greater in the future than it has been in the past, for sure. And a diverse table around you exactly. is going to help you exactly. seize those opportunities exactly. faster. Yeah, I do think most people would agree that the five-year plan is dead. Yes. <laughs> you know, maybe you have a five-month plan or one-year plan, but the five. Okay, what about some other changes. Go ahead and keep going if you want. Well, to I just road. was going to say that during the pandemic, I heard someone say during the pandemic, we're still in the middle of the pandemic, but someone said, uh, oh yeah, there's now only three work days. And I was like, three work days? What do you mean? Like, what kind of job do you have? I'm not having like seven work days. And they say, yeah, there's only three work days. There's yesterday, there's today and tomorrow. I don't remember what <laughs> we did a month ago. I have no clue where we're going to be in another month. And th that is exactly what you're saying that we j it is changing so rapidly, we just can't prepare. And the diverse set of eyes and opinions and experiences around the table is a way to be more agile because you can pivot more quickly when you've got someone who's saying, hey, here's the way I see it or here's what I understood from the way I grew up or here's my experience. So I do think they are, I have not seen those two connected before until this moment. Uh, can I give you one? Mm. Can I give you one more that I, I mean, please. I, I think the idea of conflict is one of those um, skills that, of course, we needed it in the past, but we're going to need it even more in the future. You think about the things that we're talking about at work that, and not even at work, like in the first interview of a job, people are bringing up, hey, so tell me how your company handled the murder of George Floyd. Right. And you're like, I don't even know you, and we're talking about racial reconciliation. I mean, that would have come like, years or if ever at all. I mean, we, you know, that would have been one of those, you don't talk about religion at the table. I mean, now we're talking about sexual orientation, uh, gender identity. Uh, we're talking about, uh, all kinds of complicated, complex issues at work. And you might not agree with the person that you're working with. I would say on top of that, yeah. the, you know, social media, helicopter parenting, we're becoming, as a society, less able to have difficult conversations 
than we've ever been before. Yeah. And I think this is an area where number one, the, the future of leadership is calling for a leader to become more adept at having hard conversations. And as a society, we're becoming worse at doing it, which is why I think it's so important for leaders, leaders who are trying to develop into the kind of leader that the future is demanding. They're going to have to figure out, well, how do I get better at having hard conversations? Because I'm, because I'm having to have more of them and they're becoming even more important. Yeah, so that's a great question. How do you do that? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm glad you asked, Kerry. I, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I, I do know. I would say it's hard, I should say. It starts with empathy. It starts with really understanding what the other person's feeling. I saw yeah. the principal of our kid's school do this. I went to lunch with him. Uh, a couple of months ago, and I told him, I don't want anything. I just want to tell you, we love the school and we're for you. And he was like, whoo, man, I didn't know what you wanted. Thank you. That's wonderful. You know, now we can just have a nice lunch. And I was like, so everybody's mad right now. He's like, oh, everybody's mad right now. You know, everybody's mad about something. And he said, that's the difference between 2021 and 2020. Uh, when, when we had lunch at the end of 2021, he said, the difference is uh, in 2020, everybody was like, hey, we're all in this together. Let's fight this together. We got to have each other. Let's unify. 2021 was like, we're sick of this. Like, I'm just going to be mean. I mean, I saw a person on this, you know, on at McDonald's the other day who jumped in through the window and like tried to get in a fight with the kitchen staff because they didn't get his order right. I mean, we're seeing people on flights like Whoa. doing ridiculous stuff to flight attendants yeah. and they're just yeah. angry. They're just like, I'm tired of it. I'm done, you know. And he said, what I've learned is when I'm talking to somebody who's hot under the collar, he said, I really put myself in their shoes and I've thought, you know, there's some reasons why they're extra upset right now. Number one, it's their money at work. You know, you're always more into it when it's your own money and number, and it's your taxpayer money or private school money or whatever. Number two, um, when it's your child, of course, you love this person more than anything else, anyone else. And then number three, it, you're talking about an experience in which you have experience in the same area. I mean, everybody went to school. So you have your own school experience at the very least to compare it to. And so of course, but I thought that empathy to be able to walk into that conversation with that is so help. And it just, it allows you to go, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to calm myself down. I'm going to have a little bit more patience, but in the book I outline, here's four four A's, a four-step process to affirm what's true, affirm your intentions, to ask some curious questions, to acknowledge what you've heard, and then to advise, to bring your advice at that point. Most people work backwards through that process. We mm -hmm. throw out the advice first, you know, rip off the text, right. you better, how dare you? And then you end up having to acknowledge you're wrong, ask for forgiveness, and affirm that you still enjoy your job. So you're going to go through the process one way or the other. You may as well prepare for it and then go through it affirm, ask, acknowledge, and then advise. Even the goats will have a coach. So if you're the greatest of all time, you're going to have a coach. And you're right. There is a sense at which, you know, and I'm a bit older than you, where you have the thought, at least in the back of your mind, it's like, okay, I, I should have this figured out by now. And then you realize, <laughs> right. I don't have this figured out by yeah. now. Um, the goats will have a coach. That's a trend you see in leadership. Well, the trend, the trend that I see that I'm most excited about, and I'll be curious your perspective on this because you have yeah. kids that are emerging adults, is I see a lot of reverse mentoring, which I think is fabulous. I mean, but the concept is basically 
The future is so unclear. It's so hazy. It's so foggy. You cannot see it. You know that statement, you know, what you don't know won't hurt you. Dumbest statement of all time. What you don't know, of course, will hurt you. It has hurt you. It is hurting you now, and it will certainly hurt you in the future, but you don't have to not know. You can get someone further down the road, or in what we're seeing in so many cases, we're seeing people go, hey, you're 25, you're 30. You see in a way that I don't see. Help me see. I had a young guy on our staff at Buckhead Church that um, he helped me see the racial tension in Atlanta in a way that I would never have been able to see it. And it was such a gift. And so I hope that that trend continues where it's not just get a coach, meaning get someone who has gray hair, who's down the road, has a bunch of wisdom, which might be the case, but it's also the idea of get someone who's maybe can translate culture in a way that would help you understand it. I assume your kids help you do that. Oh, all the time. I mean, personally, and then my youngest one, Sam, works in my company. And uh, I would be very concerned if it was a whole bunch of people in their 50s. Not because of ageism or anything like that. It's just like, hey, we all grew up in the same time, same era. We tend to see things the same way. And to that diversity that you talked about, which I wholeheartedly agree with, it's um, generational diversity. Mm -hmm. I mean, I learn so much from young leaders. And it's ironic, people, you know, the people who listen to this platform, the people who, this podcast, the people who access my website. Uh, I was doing Google Analytics the other day. Number one age group, I wanna, wait, 25 I, to 34. Oh, no way. Yeah, yeah 25. You wanted, you wanted to I guess? I wanted to guess, but that's really encouraging. Go ahead, I Go ahead and guess. Well, yeah. I would have guessed, I probably would have said late 30s would have been my, that would have been my guess for number one, but it's amazing that 25 to, 25 to 34 and what percentage? Of- oh, it's like uh, it breaks into, there's five or six that break it down. So I'm going to say 20%. Okay. Then the okay. next, like right next to it is 50 and 35 up. to 44 year olds. Oh, okay, good. Nope. All right. 35 to wow. 44. You know what number three is now? Again, in the double digits. I'm going to stop guessing. 18 to 24. No way. 18 to 24. I then comes 45 that. to 54. And then 65 and over. The boomers. So it's predominantly young leaders. Mm. And I'm barely Gen X. Thank Mm. you, 1965. Uh, Most Mm. most, uh, categories would put me into the Gen X. Some would say I'm a boomer. My kids say I'm a boomer. But, you know, and I think that is diversity of opinion, getting younger leaders around the table and trying to stay current. And, you know, at, at a point I thought, oh, that's a really good practice. Now I'm like, no, I need that. Mm. Like, I I just don't see it accurately. Mm. I just don't. What do, you, what do you say to people, Carrie, when they say, hey, I got to, you know, especially if I'm speaking in front of people, if I'm leading people of diverse ages. I mean, that's amazing that you've been able to stay so young. What do you tell people? What do you attribute that to? What's the advice you give? Just young leaders. Just stay near someone. I mean, you know, a lot of my friends are similar stage, but we have friends who are younger. Mm -hmm. And then I definitely make sure that I spend a regular amount of time listening to younger voices, uh, paying attention, like in my own personal circle, making sure that I I have people on my team, Mm -hmm. that I have people in my life who are younger. And then even, you know, one of the really fun parts of parenting kids who are very much in their 20s and now 30s is... Uh, I listen. Mm. I'm like, what do you see differently? Mm. And I take notes mm. and I learn. Your podcast, the episode you did with Kara Powell, uh, mm. I, don't, I, don't, I don't remember yeah, your numbers. Are you in the 500s now? Yeah. Almost. Yeah, we're getting there. Wow. 
Me well, and Moses. Mm-hmm. I, re- I related so deeply with what she said about how uncool she is, no matter what she says. The fact that she's saying it, it's immediately uncool. It's like as soon as it comes out of her mouth, it's expired already, you know? But I feel like you do a great job of, and I, I, I wrote a chapter about vulnerability, about leaders learning how to lead with vulnerability, which is, I think, one of the most important traits of any leader of the future. And I feel like you do a great job of, you're not, I mean, you're, you're hip and stylish and you look great wherever you show up, but you're not, I don't ever get the sense with you that you are trying to be something you're not, or that you're, Mm. you're just in your lane. You're very comfortable in your own lane. And, uh, I would, I would imagine that that is attractive to the 25 to 30 year old. I hope that's true. It's taken a long time to get a little more secure. You know, as our mutual friend Reggie Joyner says, we're all a little insecure. We're all a little insecure. But, you know, it's one of those things where for leaders listening, you know, even on wardrobe, I will check in with people and say, because you don't want to be that guy who's pulling stuff out of your closet that's you've worn for the last 30 years. It's like, you know, if you're some like really weird artist and can pull that off, great. I cannot do that. And But on the other hand, you don't want to be the guy in his 50s who's trying to convince people he's in his 20s. Get, get a little bit closer. You'll see the wrinkles. Like there's <laughs> lots of them, right? So, you know, it's one of those things where in what I, how I dress, the language that I use in sort of all of that stuff, that is actually who I am. Like I am interested in new things. On the other hand, I also realize, you know, I'm almost 57. I get it. So- you know, and I think it's that comfort. If you're 40, actually, your age is really interesting because I remember when you were the young gun. Yeah. You know, you would DJ the parties and that kind of thing, and not anymore. You know, Scrog dog, the yeah. whole deal. And now you now got. I'm going teenagers. to bed when the party's happening. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember your 40s, early 40. How old are you now? Clay? 41. 41. Yeah. yeah, I remember that. You know, 41 to 45, 40 to 45 being the okay, I can still pull off the young leader. And if you're hanging out with 80-year-olds, you'll mm-hmm. always be the young mm-hmm. leader, which is fine. But like, you know, the kids don't think you're young anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're a middle-aged man with kids of your own. And you're like, now what do I do, right? And so I think it's just getting comfortable in your own skin going, okay, I can't do that. And I'm not here, but maybe I get to speak into this. I love it. And so vulnerability, like even, okay, maybe is this an example of vulnerability? Just like, okay, here's how I actually try to process this stuff. Like just take people behind the scenes. That's what I try to do. Yes. Because I'm always interested in behind the scenes. That's why I want to know how the last six months been for you. That's why I want to know. What are you seeing? What are you not seeing? Like what else is involved in vulnerability? Yes. And I think it's, it's, it's catching yourself in those moments when you're tempted to edit. When you're tempted to oh, yeah. posture and say, hey, here's the best and I'm, I'm going to hide the rest. It's, it's resisting doing that and saying instead, you know what? I'm going to let you see the fact that I don't have it all together, that I struggled with what to wear or struggled with how to show up or struggle with how to prepare for this. Angela Arendt's taught me a great lesson on this. She's a, a C, former CEO of Burberry and then her last post was she was the senior VP of retail at Apple. Is, is she, have you, you've interviewed her before? 
No, I haven't, but I would love to. You should have her. All she introductions appreciated, my well, friend. Well, she is yeah. wonderful. And she, um, you know, she Tim Cook hired her away from Burberry. It was a huge move. And when she was uh, stepping onto the executive leadership team at Apple, I believe she was the only woman at the time, only female to, on that team. So I can't imagine how intimidating it would be to be on that team, period, but to be the only female on that team. And her first role was to unify the 70,000 retail employees at Apple. That can't be a hard job, right? And she said, <laughs> you know, she's easy. like, so I'm like, oh my goodness, how do I even do this? She said, one of the first things she set out to do is I'm going to send out a quick video every Monday morning called Three Points in Three Minutes. It's real simple. Just here's what's on top of my head. Here's what I've been thinking about. And I'm just going to get it out to you. She said she's shooting one of the first ones she does and her phone rings in the middle of it. And it's her daughter, who's a college student in London at the time. And she was like, I had to get the phone because I just didn't want to send my daughter <laughs> yeah. a voicemail. She doesn't call all the time. I was really wanting to talk with her. Answer the phone. I said, hey, real quick, I'm in the middle of this video, but I'm as soon as I'm done, I'm going to call you right back. Love you. Bye. She hangs up the phone. She gets right back into the video. They wrap it up. The crew's getting their stuff packed up. And she said, hey, when we send it out, I want to send it out just like that with the phone call in it. And the crew's like, hey, you know, don't get crazy, Angela. We're Apple. We make beautiful things. We're you Apple. Know? We can fix that. <laughs> we, can, we can edit that, you know? We, we actually can bring your AI in. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Come on. We created the software that can edit it. So um, anyway, and she says, no, 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 send it out just like that. She said, the next morning I woke up and I had hundreds of emails in my inbox from Apple retail associates telling me, thank you. Thank you for showing us, pulling back the curtain and showing us that you are a real person, that you're trying to be wow. a great mom as well, that you feel the demands of everyday life like we do, and yet you're still trying to bring your very best to work, to do your life's greatest work. That's what we're trying to do as well. I just was so struck by how simple, but how profound and how scary that had to be on her part to go, you know what, I'm intimidated, it's Apple, everything's gotta be perfect and great and shiny. And she's like, nope, I want it to be real. And so I would just say, you know, I, I have a 30 year old guy that helps me with social media. He's been tremendous on this kind of stuff because I'll be like, hey, you know, he's like, hey, we need a video from you that says this, 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 and whatever. And I'm like, hey, I'm at my daughter's soccer game right now. I'm not really at a place where I can shoot a video. He's like, no, 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 do it. Just like that, tell everyone, you know? Or I'm like, hey, I gotta be honest with you. I feel really insecure about doing that because I don't really know if I can talk about that. And he's like, just say it, just say it, just like that. Say that you feel insecure talking about it and then go for it. And I just think that, that, refusal to edit. Now, of course, you know, there are times when we have to edit and there are times when we should edit the video, but I just think learning to live in a state where you're real, Hey, I'm not trying to be shiny and slick. I'm trying to be fully me and as passionate as I may still feel, but I'm trying to be fully me. I just think that is the future. That's the future of leadership. Hmm. I want to I want to go deeper into that, and I don't know exactly where to. I mean, part of that is the mo of this podcast, right? From episode one, I really haven't edited. I always give the guest editing rights. If something came out that you don't want, we'll cut it out. I think that's happened five times. You know, we so basically this is just the conversation. But I want it to feel like dinner. I want it to feel like lunch. Mm -hmm. I want it to feel like coffee. So oh, I was kind of meandering. We're, about yeah. ten minutes ago, I coughed. Will you edit that? Yeah. No. 
And see, that's probably one an example where it's like, okay, well, if you're editing a cough, you're doing that for the listening pleasure, you know, to make the experience better for the listener. Um, but learning. Well, we might, we might edit it, but you know what? I said, bless you. And you said, okay. And I realized <laughs> in my head that that couldn't be a good edit. That would be a very difficult edit to make. So I don't know, Toby, what are you going to do? You going to edit that out or leave it in? <laughs> Um, you know, if we have a technical malfunction, sure. yes, I'm going to cut that out. Sure. Let's say we lose signal or your mic dies or something like that. Yeah, we're going to we're not going to make that an awkward hearing experience. But, you know, I, I, I just for the leader who's resisting vulnerability. OK, you, you know this and I know this. There's some leaders who in the name of vulnerability do their counseling session on the air. And yeah, exactly. I don't know that that's always helpful. No, no. And then there are other leaders who are like, I'm bulletproof. I got this all figured out. Nothing's Just ever follow wrong. me and your yeah. life will be perfect. Exactly. Nothing's ever wrong. Yeah. Where's the line for leaders who are like, yeah, I need to be a little more vulnerable or perhaps I'm like oversharing. Is there a line that you follow? Well, I would say ask the people around you. I think you need to you know, have some mm. real honest mirrors in your life uh, who will tell you, hey, you're less yeah, you're probably less vulnerable than you used to be. I mean, we all know that the more famous you get, the more tempted you'll be to be less vulnerable. We typically don't get more vulnerable when we get more famous. We typically get less vulnerable, right? And and that's what's oftentimes ironic is the vulnerability is the thing that drew people in. And now that they're in, you're feeling more of a need to show them that you've got it all together now. And so I would just say, pay attention mm-hmm. to that. I would say, secondly, pay attention to, um, it's, it's, I don't know how great it is to be vulnerable about things that are still in process. So I'm, I don't, I wouldn't suggest as a leader showing up to your meeting on Monday and saying, wow, it was a hard weekend. My wife moved out. I don't know if we're going to make it. That's probably, <laughs> yeah. that's probably a little too in the moment. You know, I think probably there, talk to your counselor and a few close friends about that one. I think so. And then Maybe try not to the figure out meeting. what your next steps are. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, yeah. that, you know, no, how, I think that's, well, go ahead. Go. No, you go. Well, I was going to say helpful. Helpful is a, that's what I try to do. Will this help someone who hears it? Mm-hmm. And if the answer is yes, then I can probably share it. Or, you know, let's say I am having a disagreement with my wife. She does listen to every episode. Thank you, Tony. You're a gem. Every but let's episode. let's say I'm having it. I'm pretty sure. That is remarkable. In a long marriage. I know Good my one. wife listens to every one of your episodes, <laughs> but I didn't know that your wife does as well. <laughs> Thank you, Jenny. Um, but you know, if Tony and I have an open loop on something, yeah. for me to go and talk about that publicly is probably not, that's not the right time. Because I don't think I'm helping anybody. I'm certainly offending her or wronging her or whatever that is called I'm doing it and um that's a good so okay well let's talk uh I got one more question because you've covered so much oh yeah how about this success doesn't have to be a scarce commodity because there is this sense in this constantly dynamic being afraid to fail um you know getting you know change happening so fast being vulnerable it almost feels like success is, you just can't be successful. And you're saying, no, 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 that's not true. Is that what you're saying? That is what I'm saying. And I'm saying that we oftentimes think of success as there's this limited supply of it and I have to go get it. And once I get it, I've gotten something that other people might not get. And when someone else gets it, that now there's less of it for me to get. 
But we, we all know this to be true. I mean, research has shown us this over and over again. This is where the gospel really intersects with good, healthy leadership. Uh, the best kind of leader is the leader that is cheering for the success of others. The best kind of leader is the one that sees the other person's success as success, as his own or her own success that sees, Hey, if you're not successful, I can't be successful. That, you know, as the, the, a lot of times in a campfire, you think about the, the simple illustration of a campfire, you know, we all go away and collect sticks and then it provides warmth and community and everybody's having a great conversation. Nobody's sitting there staring at the fire going, was that Carrie's stick that lit or was that mine? Because I'm going to be so <laughs> mad if it was Carrie's and not mine, because like, that's really annoying. No, we don't do that. We're just like, who cares? Like just put the stick in the fire. And if there's a great fire, wonderful. We're all better for it. That has got to be our mentality and our posture in the future. Of course, success is possible for every single one of us, but I think we have to see it uh, completely connected to and correlated to the success of other people. Frank Blake on Tim Ferriss's podcast, I thought just mm -hmm. told a awesome story about Jack Welch and Frank Blake was the former CEO of the Home Depot in Atlanta. We're really proud of that company. And he said every year, Jack Welch was his mentor. Jack Welch, famous uh, GE CEO, uh, wrote the book straight from the gut that I read when I was 20 years old, which made me realize that I wouldn't cut it in corporate America. And uh, <laughs> Jack Welch is a remarkable leader. And he, Frank said he'd go up there and every year and they talk about money, they talk about org chart, numbers, finances, whatever. He said down to the detail of like the cost of a product. He said it was so detailed, he couldn't believe it. He said, but the last time he went, he knew he was already retiring and he knew he was able to ask him anything. And so he asked him, hey, Frank, uh, Jack, what is the um, greatest quality in a leader? And he said, it's generosity. And he said that just shocked him because he just was like, whoa, that's not what I thought. I thought strategic planning. I thought great communicator. I thought able to cast vision, um, able to execute. But the idea that generosity is the hallmark of great leaders, um, it is a little shocking. It's a little surprising to think, but it's what we all want in each other. It's what we all want in the other person that I want to know that that person's in this for me and not in this for him or for her. And vice versa, or to flip that, I need to be the kind of leader that lets people know, hey, I'm in this for you. I'm not in this for me. And I just think that, I just think the future is going to demand more of that than the past even did. And that's always been an important quality. It's going to be even more important as we look to the future. Yeah, I think that's true. And you're getting into not to be cliche, but abundance versus scarcity exactly. thinking, yeah. which... I really believe, like, uh, I'd say the early me was probably a little more scarcity. And certainly over the last two decades, it's been a lot of, like, more of abundance. And your success does not have to come at anyone's expense. And neither does mine if I have any, right? Like, we just have an abundant mentality. And I think that's very kingdom-driven as well for those of us who are people of faith. Um, okay, Clay, book is called The Aspiring Leader's Guide to the Future comes out in January. So I think by the time this airs, it'll be out. Wonderful. Um, tell us where they can find you these days. Well, <laughs> Clay, ClayScroggins.com is my website and I'm on social media, but um, I would just say, Carrie, what you do, you know, when, when I, when I talked to you, uh, you and I spoke on Instagram live a couple weeks ago about this topic of the future of leadership. And I feel so humbled to get to talk to you about this because I've told you this, your blog that you write at the beginning of every year, what are the trends we see? I've always seen you as this, you've got this ridiculously 
innate ability to predict the future and to see what's coming before it's coming, except for um, all the things that you wrote and didn't see it coming that you did not see coming. <laughs> <laughs> I'm missing the important things in oh my life, gosh. but I catch all the trivial things, Clay. Oh my gosh, that, <laughs> yeah. that's my problem, Carrie. Here yeah. I am, like, I'm in the middle of going, like, I really want to tell Carrie how much he means to me. And I think of this <laughs> stupid, funny connection with a book that he wrote called Didn't See It Coming as I'm telling him about how well he sees stuff coming. So anyway, uh, I genuinely mean that, that I'm so humbled talking to you about this because so much of what you do is you help, you see the future and I know, no, you know, you can't predict the future. You're not a, if you could, you wouldn't be doing what you're doing now for sure. But it's so important for us all to hang our own dartboard up on the wall of where do I see this going? Because that Gretzky quote, you know, don't skate to where the puck has been, skate to where the puck is going. We need to be developing into the kind of leader that the future is going to demand. And the only way to begin doing that is to put something up on the wall and say, I think this is where we're headed and I'm going to start becoming that kind of leader. And you've been doing that for years. And so it's very intimidating to mm. talk to you about this topic, but I just cannot tell you how much I appreciate you giving me a little bit of your limelight. Well, I really appreciate you, Clay, and our friendship goes back a long time. I respect you as a leader. It's a great book. I had the privilege of reading an early copy to endorse it. And I think it is changing. And I know you probably wrote this with young leaders in mind, but I would suggest it's good for any stage of leader. Mm. And I think a lot of like future planning is just connecting the dots. And, and you know, you mentioned Seinfeld. That's one thing I've realized because people say, how do you see the future, right? It's like, well, I don't know that I do. Um, but if you notice what comedians are is they're noticers. Mm -hmm. They notice things, mm -hmm. Nate Bargatze, mm -hmm. so many others who you turned me on to, I think, for the first time years ago mm. as a young comedian. Mm -hmm. And, you know, comedians, they notice things that we miss. Yep. And the clues are there. And you've done a really good job of pulling the clues together. And I try to do that as well. So clayscroggins.com. Clay, Scroggins Clay I know this won't be the last time. Thank you so much, my friend. Oh, loved it. Yep. Thanks, Carrie. Well, fascinating as always with Clay. And uh, hey, hang on, because I got a big announcement in just a couple of minutes. I want to share with you an invite uh, that is brand new. We're doing something really big, and I want you to be part of it. But just so you know, you can get the show notes over at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 476. And want to thank our partners for this episode. You can get a custom website and web maintenance by going to prowebfire.com. Tell them I sent you. You'll get a discount and go to leader.com. That's L-E-A-D-R, no second E. And use the promo code CAREY, C-A-R-E-Y, to get 20% off your first year of their people development software. So before I tell you who's coming up next, we have something really big happening. I've got a mastermind. It's free. And you can register at influencekickstarter.com. What's it about? Well, whether it's for yourself, your church, or your business, as you know, trying to build an online presence can be intimidating and even discouraging. It can feel like you're taking a shot in the dark. But here's the thing. <laughs> your message deserves to be heard, right? And your influence determines how seriously people take that message. Some of you have an email list, but nobody opens your emails. Some of you are posting to social. You get three likes and almost no views. It's like, well, how can I change that? Well, in the mastermind, I'm going to talk about the art of online influence because your online influence decides who joins you and who stays with you on your mission, who gives to your cause, and the quality and quantity of people that you have the potential to impact. So on March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, I'm hosting a free mastermind on how to build an influential online presence. 
Building influence doesn't have to be intimidating, doesn't have to be complicated, doesn't have to be gimmicky, doesn't have to ruin your integrity. You can do it well. And I'm sharing a lot of stuff I've never shared publicly before. Uh, For example, we'll talk about how we built this to over 20 million downloads, uh, plus some of the other things that we have discovered online. So if you want to register, bring your whole team, it's free. You can go to influencekickstarter.com. That's influencekickstarter.com. You can head on over there. And now, now that you know, podcast listeners, yeah, we're going to continue to do this too. Next episode, we've got Jenny Allen. And uh, I flew down to Dallas. We met in her studio. Uh, so we have a beautiful YouTube shooting of uh, this one. But of course, you can hear it here as well, wherever you listen to your podcast. She's a New York Times bestselling author. And she talks about community, uh, the friendship she's had, the struggle she's had. What do you do when you naturally resist community? It was raw. It was real. It was powerful. Here's an excerpt. It's not fun to tell people that you want to respect you that you had a panic attack like last week, right? That was when it, when I wrote it. It was a week earlier that I'd had it. That's not fun. But I do believe that in saying it out loud and writing it, the fear went away. I had been up at night enough to have a panic attack, which I haven't had in 10 years. And I've had lots of anxiety in my life, right? I mean, I started a whole, like there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of children, lots of ministry, lots of work. It was built, the enemy was using it and building it in my head every night to a level that I had a panic attack. And you know, subscribers, the drill, right? You'll get it automatically. If you're new and a lot of you are, and you haven't subscribed yet, please do. Also coming up, an incredible interview with Philip Yancey, Ian Morgan Cron, Joshua Becker, uh, who talks about minimalism a lot, Levi Lusco, uh, and Dion Nicholas, and a whole lot more coming up on the podcast. Uh, make sure you check out my mastermind. It's happening March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, just for an hour a day. Going to have lots of QA, and you can register at influencekickstarter.com. It's absolutely free. And thank you so much for listening. I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.